After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you're the one that knows. And he said to me, These are they who've come out of the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Patmos is an island a hundred kilometers uh, west of the coast of modern-day Turkey. It's not the largest of the Greek islands. It's not the most beautiful of the Greek islands, in my opinion. When the ship lands, you can take a small bus up to the very top of this small island. There's a monastery there, the Monastery of St. John. You descend a little way from the monastery and you come to a cave that's carefully labeled and pointed out to you as the Grotto or Cave of St. John. And scholars believe that it was this cave or one similar to it on the Isle of Patmos where John lived and wrote the Revelation. John's Revelation can be explained, every chapter of it, by events going on in his own lifetime. Everything in the Revelation can be explained by things that were going on in his own lifetime. He believed the end was very close, as did all the other writers of the New Testament. All of them believed Jesus will be back next week, surely next month or next year. They had no concept whatsoever of the 21st century. The reason it's holy writ for us is that there are things in every book that are forever true. True about God, true about us. Dr. Bruce Metzger, who gave our Barton Clinton Gordy series some years ago, who was a beloved professor at Princeton Theological Seminary for many years, whose expertise were the writings of the community of John, the Gospel, the Three Letters, and the Revelation. Dr. Metzger says that if you're going to understand chapters 6 and 7, you have to understand John's mind, and that was that all power belongs to God. But God entrusts some of God's power to you and me, and when we misuse that power, surely there are consequences. Those consequences he called the judgments of God. Power entrusted to us, misused by us, bring consequences. Okay. 
Let's pick up where we left off last Sunday. John said he saw the one seated on the throne, Almighty God, of course, and that God had in his hand a great scroll, and this scroll was sealed by seven seals. I've told you that writing materials of that first century were far more brittle than the ones we use today. They were not easily folded, and so they were rolled. And when the last flap came over, then blobs of wax were used to seal signet rings affixed so that there were sign and symbol in the wax hardened if that seal were broken and another one put in its place it would be easy to tell that this was not the real one that someone who was not supposed to read had read the number seven in John's revelation always means completeness last week when he saw the lamb he saw that this lamb had seven horns that means he was all-powerful he had seven eyes that meant he could see everything Seven seals means really sealed. A cry went out across the face of the earth, Who can come and break these seven seals and help us see into the mind and heart of God? But there was no one found worthy. And John began to weep because he wanted to see God's plan. He wanted to see the revelation of just how this end was about to occur. He believed in his own lifetime. And a voice said to him, Wait, there is one who is worthy. Behold the Lion of Judah and he turned to see the Lion of Judah and saw a Passover lamb still barring bearing the marks of slaughter this same faith community produced the three letters and the Gospel of John and in John's Gospel Jesus is called Lamb of God Lamb of God the Passover lamb now a human being offered up for us the lamb is worthy and so today we pick up with the lambs breaking the seals and John's getting a look into the scroll first he said I saw a white horse a rider astraddle that horse who had a great bow in his hands even as strong as Rome was it had its enemies and one of those enemies, the one that lay on its easternmost flank, not so many miles from Patmos, was Parthia. And the Parthians were known for their magnificent, beautiful white horses, that the favorite color of the Parthian government was white, and that they had the largest army in the world mounted on white horses shooting arrows from bows. Parthia. Parthia, power entrusted by God, power misused. Now, what is the truth of this for us? Well, go back to 1989. The wall came down in Berlin. The Soviet Union started to fall apart. Then there were some of us who hoped that maybe a generation, two or three, we could have peace. How long did it take? before the dictator in North Korea started rattling his saber? How long before the leader of the government in Iran started rattling a saber? How long before the Taliban in Pakistan threatened to take over a government and hence have access to nuclear weapons in Pakistan? And Russia now is reasserting itself. John didn't know about any of those great powers, but what he knew was there will always be somebody and some group who will misuse the power God has entrusted to them. I looked again. I saw a red horse. And this warrior had in his hand a great 
sword. Red's the color of blood, of course. And a sword must have been horribly frightening. John was a poor man, as far as we can tell, huddled up in a cave on the top of a small island, 62 miles off the coast of Turkey. Fighting in his day was up close and personal. People didn't drop bombs from 12,000, 25,000 feet up. They didn't shoot heavy artillery that would carry 30 miles. It was close up and personal. Knives thrust into one's belly. Great swords slashing people to the ground from horseback. A red horse. Because of the misuse of power, because of the great white horse, there will come red horses. There will be death and destruction. I looked again. A rider on a black horse. And this rider is holding a scale in the hand. A scale. A symbol of the marketplace. And a voice crying out, the price of wheat, the price of barley. And in both cases, the voice says, the amount of wheat one can buy for one denarius, the amount of barley one can buy for one denarius, one denarius, the standard rate of pay for the average worker in John's time. What happens after war? Crops are destroyed. Roots of commerce are disrupted and prices go up. Prices go up. Western Europe was so determined to punish the Germans after World War I that they threw them into such poverty and despair that inflation was rampant. My old German professor said that shortly after World War I, he and his wife went to the store one day and they could buy a loaf of bread for a Deutsche Mark. And the next day, a loaf of bread was two Deutsche Mark. And the next week, a loaf of bread was four Deutsche Mark. And within three or four years, you needed a wheelbarrow full of Deutsche Mark to buy a loaf of bread. John understood. When you have war, foodstuffs are wasted. Crops are burned and destroyed. Roots of commerce disrupted. And poor people, more than any other, start to go hungry. I looked again. I saw a fourth horse. The old King James Version says this horse was pale gray. Clint Eastwood rode a pale gray horse in one of his movies, you remember. The pale gray horse. The word in Greek is not gray. It's chloros, which we have in chloroform and chlorophyll. It's green. And your new Revised Standard Version says, I looked and saw a pale green horse. Pale green? Have you ever felt nauseous and somebody said, how are you feeling? Ooh, I feel green. That's the color we're talking about here. This green is, it's decay. It's what happens at the end of war when bloated bodies are strewn across the earth, when you can smell the stench of rotting flesh, famine and pestilence and despair. The lamb is still breaking seals and the scroll is being unrolled and John says, I saw the martyrs under this magnificent throne of God with the lamb lying right alongside. I saw the martyrs who cry out to the one on the throne, how much longer? 
how much longer will children be killed in war? How much longer young fathers and mothers died sacrificed to the misuse of power generation after generation after generation? How much longer? And a voice from the throne said, a little longer. A little longer. And so I looked again. And here John draws on prophets from the Hebrew Scriptures. There are 22 chapters in the Revelation, 404 verses, 278 of those verses, almost 70% are direct allusions to something in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. This is one of those places. He pulls from the work of Joel. He pulls two different times from the work of Isaiah. And he's describing natural phenomena that you and I know about today that must have frightened ancient folk out of their minds. An earthquake? Everything is so still and peaceful and suddenly the part of the earth where you live begins to shake and buildings start falling down and people are dying? Great amounts of water are none at all. The sun turns black in an eclipse. The moon appears red like blood when certain fires and smoke conditions exist. Stars falling from the heavens? Surely these are portents that the little bit longer, the little bit longer is coming to an end, surely. And yet, of course, in every generation, in every century, we've had all of these things again and again and again. And so John said, I heard a voice saying, wait, wait, don't destroy the earth until all the faithful have a seal on their foreheads. The seal on the foreheads were almost sure he meant baptism, the waters of baptism. In orthodoxy, the baby was held backward and water placed onto the head, often poured over the head, right from the forehead, pouring down over the head of the child. The mark is baptism. Those who have professed faith in God through Christ Jesus, that God did in fact so love the world, this community of John produced those words, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The 144,000, that's just a bigger number than John can imagine. I told you that the biggest number he had in Greek was a thousand. Biggest number he had. In John's time, they didn't add three more zeros and talk about a million. They didn't add three more zeros and talk about a billion. They talked about thousands. How many sons of Jacob? Twelve. When you multiplied one significant number by another significant number, you made it even more significant. Pentecost, I told you, occurred when the Jews had come back to Jerusalem a week of weeks after Passover. Seven times seven. And the next day, the Holy Spirit came anew like tongues of fire, the 50th. And our word Pentecost is the 50th. 
7 times 7. In this case, John says, ah, 12 times 12,000. The biggest number he knew. And the scholars I read this week, six different ones said, this is John's picture of the church militant. By militant, he didn't mean killing folks. He meant busy, busy, organized, disciplined, doing the will of God in the world. The churches of God and will endure to the end of time. 144,000 lined up like warriors doing God's will. But out of that community of John, what had they been told to do? From that gospel that came out of that community, they were told that the last thing Jesus did for those disciples was to wash their feet. And then the mandatus, this I command you, that you wash each other's feet, that you love one another as I have loved you. The church militant about the work of God in the world. And then, more than he can count, more than 144,000. He says, people from every nation, every tribe, every language, all dressed in white, all waving palm branches. They're going to get it right this time. They didn't get it right that first time. He entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, the crowd vanished during the week, this time more than the eye can possibly imagine, more than John could count the church. Dr. Eugene Boring says, remember John's writing to seven little churches in Asia Minor. Seven little churches. They have no magnificent buildings. They own no hospitals, no great universities. They are held up to ridicule constantly by the people who live around them who are pagan and heathen, who make fun of them. You believe in this Messiah you've never even seen that somebody else told you about so long ago? And he says, you may be a handful here, a handful there, a handful in a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh place, but guess what? You're a part of something much bigger, more than any of us can count, dressed in white. Okay. Two points at the end. Their robes have been made white because they've washed them in the blood of the Lamb. And the scholars say this means that there's something for us to do besides accepting God's gift. God's gift to us is grace. But God loves us just the way we are because that's who God is. We receive that gift of God's grace, God's favor, God's wanting good to come to us. But then Paul said in his letters, you have to work out your faith with fear and trembling. Recently I was reading an interview in the Wall Street Journal with Ed Reed. Ed had just had his 80th birthday. Ed was born in Cleveland, Ohio. When he was just seven, his family, looking for something better, moved to California, to Los Angeles, and moved into a neighborhood called Watts. Ed grew up in Watts. Violence drugs, alcohol abuse. By the time he was 17, he dropped out of high school, joined the U.S. Army. I heard an Army general say at the downtown Rotary Club one time, there's so many people that think they can send us bad little boys and we send them back good men. 
They send us bad little girls, we send them back good women. It doesn't happen that way, he said. The military just speeds up the process. If this person has within him or her the very best, has a good heart, a good mind, does things for the right reasons, we will help them become great men and women. If they do not, they will just become worse and worse. Ed was tossed out of the military when he was 20. Went right back to Watts, started doing drugs again, got involved with the drug traffic, spent the next 15 years in, in prison at Folsom. At 35, he was discharged, released from prison, didn't change the way he was doing things, had learned not to get crossways with the law, just beat up on himself, more drugs, more alcohol for 20 more long years. But he was still living when he got to be 55. And he said one night at an Addicts Anonymous meeting, he heard his story. Somebody told his story that was also Ed's story. That was my story, he said. That's what had happened to me. And I began to understand. Why was he being interviewed in the Wall Street Journal? Because he, at 78, recorded a new DVD, put up the money himself, and it sold really well. He has a wonderful voice. Now he's 80 years old. And this interview is about, well, Ed, what's it been like the last two years? What's it been like the last two years for people to want to come and hear you sing? He said, that's what I do at night. I do that for fun. Let me tell you about my day job. And his day job for the last 25 years has been trying to help somebody else understand what he finally came to understand. You gotta wash your robe. The gift has been given. Now work out your salvation with your day job by investing your life for others. Number 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 ten, we are actually here. Ten points today if you haven't been keeping up. Number ten. But the day is coming, John said. The day is coming when the Lord God will bring all of this to an end no more hunger no more thirst no more scorching heat listen to this interesting turn of a phrase the lamb will be their shepherd leading them to the spring of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes Mark Collins said that he and his wife got a call one night that her first cousin named Carol had been diagnosed with a very aggressive malignancy. Carol was 23. Mark says she was 23. We told her how sorry. Please keep us in touch. We'd be there to see about her. She was engaged to a young man named Gary. She wanted Gary to hear everything the doctors could tell them about her condition. And when he'd heard it all, he said he still wanted to marry her. So they planned the wedding as soon as possible. Carol had surgery. She had radiation. Doctors discovered that her brother was a perfect match for her, and he gave bone marrow for a transplant for her. And Mark says, last week we got a call from Gary that Carol had died. 
but it had been 25 years. It had been 25 years, and when Gary called, he said, we didn't waste a day. We didn't waste a day. Do it now. Love hard. Get the best seat. Be alive. Be grateful. Be alive. Be grateful. And when you've done it the best you know how, one day he will wipe every tear from your eyes.